On February 24th, Russia fired missiles into Ukraine, launching a war that has displaced millions and likely killed thousands. One week later, on March 3rd, mega retailer IKEA announced it would pause all production in both Russia and Belarus and shutter its namesake stores. It wasn't the first company to make this call, but it was an early mover. Hundreds of companies have since followed suit. The social pressure has continued to grow, and several companies have now announced they will stop doing business in Russia. A big one, Starbucks. Many businesses are leaving Russia in protest. Companies like McDonald's, Starbucks, Intel, and Apple. Others continue to do business in Russia, and they face some serious public criticism. That may make IKEA's choice seem simple. The risk of doing business with Russia has never been higher, especially in the U.S. Americans are calling on companies across all sectors to leave Russia. I think those companies are going to pay a significant economic price if they do not pull out of Russia immediately. But as we'll hear today, the decision to halt operations wasn't black and white, and it was anything but simple. Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and you were just listening to my fabulous co-host, Ellen McGirt. Thanks, Alan, and welcome, everybody. I am really looking forward to hearing from our guest today, the CEO of Inca Group, better known as IKEA to most of us, Jesper Brodin. The complicated decision to leave Russia is a real-life, real-time, and painful case study of stakeholder purpose-driven leadership in action. And it's costly. In the year through last August, Russia was IKEA's 10th biggest market, with retail sales of 1.6 billion euros or uh, $1.8 billion. That's 4% of total retail sales, Alan. That's a lot. Yeah, I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I think the way businesses responded to the invasion of Ukraine was kind of unprecedented in the history of modern business. And IKEA was a big part of it. So I'm glad Hesper is going to talk about that. But even before the conflict in Ukraine, I was eager to get Jesper on this show because of the work he's done in both sustainability mm -hmm. and inclusive culture. So we have a lot to talk about. Yes, Jesper Brodin, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Russia and Ukraine. Talk about how important those two markets are to your business and how they've been affected by the war. Well, obviously, let's let's start by just acknowledging the incredible tragedy that we are experiencing and that I think very few people um, had on the radar as one of the options. Um, it's impacting us, uh, as you say, uh, of course, on uh, heavily on the business side, but also emotionally. I have myself been part of the generations of IKEA that for more than 20 years have been building up the business in Russia. We recently, uh, just a year ago or so, entered Ukraine. Um, so our operation there was a bit smaller. Um, but um, it's nothing less than a tragedy. And of course, a bit like the pandemic, it's uh, there is no manual or guidebook for us here. Uh, it's about weighing uh, all aspects and try to, in a short time, um, get a 360 perspective of the situation and use our moral and ethical compass to do the right thing. So it is correct. We, we decided uh, to pause our activities uh, for IKEA in Russia uh, fully. 
including the whole value chain, uh, impacting more than 12,000 uh, uh, co-workers. Uh, our first uh, activities has been, of course, to safeguard our colleagues in Ukraine, but shortly after also making sure that we secure to start with at least uh, three months pay for the co-workers we have in Russia. And then we are currently working with assessments, uh, scenario planning, and looking into uh, both um, short-term, but also the long-term types of scenarios for the business. And uh, I would uh, need to be honest also to say at this moment, I think there are more questions than answers on those topics. Can we go back to the original decision-making process? Who was around the table? Who did you call to weigh in and how did you decide to move forward? Well, in the decision-making in such an important part, we, we of course have a governance structure with, uh, with our uh, board of directors uh, being part of any, any type of decision like that. But we work, uh, I would say, since uh, a few years back, we have been um, operating uh, in crisis. So we are well right. uh, trimmed at the moment for uh, operating right. through crisis management, which I think most of the companies out there are. Obviously, the weeks leading up to uh, before the invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, we were not idle. So we, we had some uh, scenario planning as well uh, in order to prepare for the decision. Still, it was a very hard call to make, uh, I must say, and admit. Jesper, we frequently talk on this podcast about tensions between the shareholder, the owner, and other stakeholders. But it seems to me that in this case, you were dealing with a conflict among stakeholders. You had one group of people who said, for the sake of the world, for the moral right thing to do, we have to pull out of Russia but hey, we have twelve thousand employees. These are these are stakeholders too. Right. These are people we care about who've been working hard for us. How do you balance something like that? Well, it is. I think it's a true dilemma. The decision might not be so obvious. What what is the right thing to do? In this case, up to the decision, but also at this moment for us, and I would claim for any leader out there, is a very challenging dilemma where. On one side, to um, put the economic pressure on the system in order to act in favor of peace and um, humanitarian perspectives. On the other hand, um, doing so, of course, leads to a lot of challenges for the Russian population, for, for ordinary people, uh, for co-workers. The centers that are often connected to the IKEA stores are still kept open, where they provide food, medicine, and so forth uh, to people. So again, you know, what is the right thing to do depends on uh, the angle you take here. Mm. I I think that as much as I sympathize with the emotional aspect of where we are, uh, we also have to start a debate on the long-term perspective, which is what is the pathway back for the Russia and Russian population? Uh, because of course, there's not the possibility in the long run that we try to achieve things by polarization and distancing. It can even be the opposite impact. Uh, when it comes to the answers of the questions, I think uh, with the rest of the world leaders here and business leaders, we're trying to wayfind. We're trying to do what's right for people. And then we will have to uh, basically in time see what is the right decisions to take. There are, Ellen, if I can follow on that, there are some companies that have made the opposite decision. I think Renault in France uh, Coke Industries in the U.S. have said we're we're siding with our our Russian employees here. We're going to keep the businesses open. What do you say to them? But I think it puts um, puts a spotlight on the uh, dilemma. So, do you do you side with your business? Do you side uh, with shareholders' interest? Do you side with a political statement? And as you know, corporate leaders 
have ended up in a situation that I think is unheard of in our generation. Possibly something we have practiced in the pandemic as well. Where what is the moral and, and ethical right thing to do? And I can just witness that from an IKEA perspective and from our company, none of the scenarios are good for business that we can take out of the equation. It all looks incredibly challenging, uh, both uh, pausing, losing top line, uh, but also anything when it comes to cost or mitigation, there is simply no good business uh, path for us in any of the opportunities. And therefore, I think I would say at this point, I, I understand that companies have um, found different ways of reasoning. And I think maybe we have to look at what type of business people are in and what type of, of footprint they have as well. If you're smaller, if you belong to an industry which is less of a necessity, probably the decision is a bit easier. But then again, when it comes to the moral and ethical right to do, I guess that goes beyond size of business or what the line of business you're into. And it's a difficult question, uh, I think, for all of us. I, I want to talk about your cultural footprint because IKEA is beloved in so many interesting ways and it probably is differentiates itself around the globe. And I'm curious how you thought about that in Russia. We're already seeing, it looks to me like a, a clever patent infringement clone of IKEA popping up across Russia. How did you factor in the cultural impact and the relationship that you had with the, the DIY uh, furniture loving crowd there? What I think IKEA has a benefit is that we are being a company owned by a foundation. Right. As you often speak to Alan, right. uh, we feel that there is very little distance in the view between the management uh, of the company and the board. It's very aligned based on uh, long-termness, based on purpose. And where the IKEA vision is uh, basically to support people in creating a better everyday life, primarily through improving uh, homes and making uh, homes affordable. And there, uh, IKEA has been, from a business perspective in Russia, for instance, there has been uh, more than two decades of building that business. Uh, and to be honest, it's, it's not been, even if it's been growing, it's not been our most profitable business over the years. But we mm. have uh, furnished a lot of uh, people's apartments, a lot of ordinary, mm. hardworking people uh, out there. And of course, where we think is that IKEA should be and try to be wherever there is a lot of people. And, you yeah. know, sometimes uh, things look uh, quite grim, quite dark on the horizon. But we try to always remind ourselves, as our founder used to say, you know, we, we need to think long term. And when we asked him how long term, he said 200 years is a good uh, perspective. <laughs> and the last weeks I've been thinking about that comment from him, because <laughs> in a way we are not about ultimately asset protection. We're about investing in, uh, in making that vision happen for the many people. And, and that could uh, partly explain your deep, deep commitment to sustainability. I mean, you have a, a, a governance structure that encourages that. You have a long-term focus that encourages that. But still, I want to ask you about that because it's not obvious that a company whose initial purpose was to make homes and home furnishings inexpensive would also be committed to sustainability. I mean, you're, you're making, you know, much of the furniture at some point in its life cycle ends up on the trash heap. Uh, so it wasn't a natural pairing, it seems to me. How did you get there? Well, you can say, I, I think actually I, I would like to, and I think it's an important uh, aspect of doing business today. Uh, so I would see it twofold. The first one is, of course, our founder decided to uh, set up the company and basically give it away to a, a charitable foundation, which only purpose, except for 
so to say, protecting uh, the assets. Uh, so that's just the structure we live by. And then it happens to be synonymous with, with the vision of the company as well, which is quite unique. But the second part, which I think uh, goes for any company out there, and that is, I would say, my lifelong uh, learning working for IKEA from starting in Asia Pacific many years ago. To do the right thing for people and planet is equal to do right for the business. If not now, in the mid and long term, this proves to be the right thing. And I have so many examples of, of that through the climate work, but also the, the people uh, side that we have worked with, uh, securing working hours um, on a correct level in our supply chain, all the way to investing in renewable energy, is uh, morally, ethically right. It's good for the brand, but it's also the only way that IKEA, serving the many people, uh, can actually be cost smart of the future. Mm. And there I think, again, at any time, we're happy to, and I'm happy to engage in discussions around consumption, because in the end of the day, IKEA is uh, serving people, the people with uh, thin wallets, and uh, typically not people consuming for the fun of it, but people uh, fulfilling basic needs of storage, sleeping, eating, etc. in life at home. Um, so we are part of a very big responsibility to make sure that that is, um, uh, and will become, not in a too distant future, in harmony with, with the planet and people, of course. You mentioned you could give us a couple of examples. Why don't we start with sustainable energy, or excuse me, renewable energy? How did that work and that commitment come about? You can say it was quite, I would say, quite early from a corporate perspective. There were some visionary leaders who basically were seeing where we were heading. And there was a discussion within the, the company that we might need to do macro hedging since we are so dependent, all businesses are more or less dependent on energy, of course, in their equation. Uh, being a foundation-owned, asset-strong uh, corporation with a quite low, uh, so to say, expectations on returns, we are conservative from a financial perspective. We were capable to, to start to invest some uh, more than 10 years ago. And today we, we are heading towards uh, basically 6 billion euros into renewable energy. We have uh, since more than a year passed 100% of our own consumption in scope one and two. We're still working on making sure that we also can connect it on every place. In some places, we we have yet uh, to get started. And in uh, some places, we are at 300% maybe of our own consumption. Uh, interesting enough, during these uh, last uh, years, which was not part of our plan, that has also shown to be an incredibly smart decision from an economic perspective. So it's really contributing to the bottom line result of the group. And and Jesper, how about the materials that are going into your furniture? How is that changing to meet your sustainability goals? You can say, obviously, one dialogue to be had is to reduce the unnecessary uh, consumption, which is uh, often uh, discussed. I would say it's important to remember that's only a, a small part of what uh, we need to do. I don't think there is spontaneous purchases of, of mattresses. Uh, it's a need-based uh, uh, product. But at the end of the day, in a, a growing world population, uh, we need to simply make sure that the core of the issue sits in mattresses in itself. And therefore, we need to make sure that mattresses can be climate neutral, at the least. And we have already, actually, in IKEA, in the first market in Netherlands, implemented a model where we have reversed um, flows of mattresses, which are bulky, mm -hmm and has a negative impact, of course, on the carbon mm. footprint. We are right now taking back not only IKEA's mattresses, but we have the capacity to take back all mattresses in Netherlands, and it's turning out to be a good business as well. 
So again, uh, this needs to happen in um, in a Pareto what way. Happens, what happens to the mattresses when you take them back? You recycle them into other products? Exactly. It's fairly straightforward, actually. So again, we, we are capable through our uh, four reversed production units, if you like, to take back, split up in metals, styrofoam, and polyester. And we are basically providing it back to the supply chain. Uh, some of it goes wow. back to our own suppliers and some we are selling. And today, all, all of these uh, uh, components are attractive from a price point, meaning that we are capable right. to offer better prices than Virgin. Um, yeah. And this is, you can say, in order to together achieve that sooner, uh, which is possible and will happen in, I would say, any material which where the ver Virgin material uh, has a too high uh, uh, climate footprint, our job together with governments is to speed up uh, uh, to make that curve, so to say, the crossing of the curves yeah. happen to a certain extent that it's economically viable. And, and, and scale it from the Netherlands and to 7 trillion people around the world. It's, it's, exactly. Yeah. And it's, yeah. since you mentioned that, that is what we are trying to do now. We are running into some headaches. Um, in certain countries, uh, we are facing the issue that uh, we are meeting subsidies of incineration, for instance. But then you have to understand, of course, that governments have tried to move away from landfill to incineration. So that's yeah. why they subsidized. But when we can provide a solution when, when, which has an incredibly positive impact on climate, of course, I'm sure it will happen. But we need to find ways in dialogue between corporates and governments to speed up that change. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte US and the sponsor of this podcast for all three of its seasons. Thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, business is facing so many challenges these days. The continued pandemic, the battle for talent, supply chain problems, rising inflation, and now on top of all of that, war in Europe. How are companies responding to all this disruption? Alan, you're seeing a remarkable level of optimism in the face of so many varied challenges challenges. And by and large, I'd attribute that to a recognition that this is just the new normal, the constant curveballs that will be thrown at us. But at the same time, given how successfully so many of these organizations have navigated through these things over the past couple of years, a growing confidence that we'll be able to continue to navigate the issues that get thrown at us and grow our businesses. But to do that, we are absolutely seeing a new brand of leadership emerge, grounded in resilience, in agility, in a learning mindset. These are the most important leadership attributes in an environment where we should just expect that change and disruption are going to be at a consistently high level of intensity. The problems aren't going away, Joe, right? <laughs> that you have to manage through them. I had a CEO say to me recently that if you put together a list of the top 20 risks one week, something big's gonna hit the next week and it probably isn't even on that list. And that's just a reflection of the number of different phenomena in the world right now and the level of complexity that businesses are managing through. Joe, thank you. Alan, it's a real pleasure. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your path through IKEA. And I can tell you what our listeners are going to be listening for, the moments that really helped, in retrospect, prepare you for the job that you now have. Wow. Well, uh, that's that's uh, something I will reflect on when I'm done with this job <laughs> and uh, writing a book oh. uh, 
but you know, there are some defining moments, right? Um, I think one, one of the moments I can share is uh, I was invited by the head of our foundation, uh, Mr. Per Hegenes, to, to join him on a trip to Jordan a few years ago. Uh, so Jordan was a receiver of refugees from Syria mm-hmm. uh, in the conflict uh, there. Mm-hmm. And I think with some approximate numbers, we talk about that the population of Jordan went from, please forgive me if I'm not uh, exact, uh, but some 8 million to close to 10 million people. So we talk about a massive refugee crisis. Uh, the foundation stepped in uh, from the start to support with uh, providing shelters. But why Per connected with me was that uh, the insight from him and organizations like UNHCR that in order for people to rebuild a dignified life and not be a burden but an asset to society, we need to be able to provide jobs. So I was actually engaged in uh, setting up uh, a structure where 400 women uh, were capable to, be, to gain employment uh, from IKEA and Jordan. And that was a big moment for me. And it was, I can tell you, it wasn't an easy project at all to to see through. We took that learning and we created something called Skills for Employment, um, which is a program we've been running in most of our markets the last uh, two to three years. And right now we are in the uh, absolutely tragic uh, refugee situation we see from Ukraine, where four million people to this moment have actually been forced uh, or seen themselves forced to leave the country. So we are, except for our donations to organizations, which in the total IKEA family is actually at the scale of 55 million euro already. We're also now scaling the activities of uh, doing our part of employing people. And the interesting thing again, which, which will be the title of my book one day, is that this is, this is as, you know, we have to see this as something good for business. Um, here, qualified people with a willingness mm-hmm. to rebuild their lives in a market that has a fairly low uh, unemployment, of course, could be an, a liability. But let's see this situation as an asset also, as much as a humanitarian uh, support. And I think we will get to the right place even faster. Yeah. Jesper, in your spare time, and I can't imagine listening to you that you have much spare time, frankly, but in your spare time, I understand you like sailing. I guess that's why you're on the western coast, the beautiful western coast of Sweden, uh, and you play the guitar. Not at the same time normally, <laughs> but uh, you're correct. <laughs> that's good. Uh, those help. Those both help keep you sane in, in this uh, crazy world. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think it's important for everyone, and not at least in these moments. I, you know, we're in for a long haul for a marathon of uh, challenges. Uh, but I think as a leader, you need to find a way to channel your energy and to refuel. And these latest years, I think, have taught me that uh, leaders and I myself, uh, I'm more fragile than I might think. And uh, we need to be super uh, careful about our own mental health um, and our own uh, capability of recharging, because otherwise we will not be able to do the right things and maybe take the wrong decisions, send the wrong signals and not basically last in what seems to be a very important a moment of the history of uh, uh, humankind. So therefore, I, I, uh, I have some plans for sailing. And um, uh, to my neighbors, um, uh, sometimes uh, agony, uh, <laughs> I, I also like to play very loud guitar from once in a while. <laughs> it's my yoga, if you like. Are we ready for our lightning round, Alan? Go for it. Yes, for this season, we've been asking all our guests to just give us top of mind responses to some of the really pressing issues facing all leaders everywhere. So first question is, what's top of mind for you when you think about COVID? 
I think when I think about COVID, it's uh, humanism. Mm. Is the word that springs to mind. Humanism. Yeah, I think uh, what I've seen the last years is just an incredible amount of mobilization of caring. Yeah. But um, the amount of caring I've seen and experienced the last years is uh, something that uh, touches me deeply. Uh, unselfish uh, caring for other people uh, that I've seen among my leaders. I've seen it in the societies where we operate. I've seen it in relations uh, between uh, the company and unions. Uh, and I've seen it on so many areas. When, when it's really a crisis, you see the best of people. That's a wonderful answer. So next question, what's top of mind for you when you think about the global economy? Challenges. <laughs> I think uh, for sure uh, we are in and we will um, have to accept that the coming 12, 24 months is going to be bumpy ride. And I have mixed emotions about it. In, in one way, I would say I learned that uh, through my years in uh, working in some difficult environments that what I can't change, I try not to worry too much about. So when it comes to the economy, I think it's just accepting that it's going to be a bumpy road. In the IKEA perspective, you can say that means that our role is sometimes even more important because people have less money in their wallets and we simply need to do a better job on providing affordable solutions for people. So in one way, you can say it means both um, challenges and opportunities uh, for a company like IKEA. But what we are experiencing now is also some new elements. And I would maybe add to that also, you know, humbleness for that there is no history book that helps us predict the future. And I would love to discuss uh, deflation because, you know, the inflationary economy that we see now is uh, built up uh, uh, from a pandemic in a globally traded world. And um, when all of that gets uh, uh, settled and right, which will happen, we will experience other type of economic factors as well. So I guess humbleness for the unknown is also one of the things I, I would like to, mm. to share. Mm. And finally, what's top of mind for you as you think about your growth as a leader? Well, it's Friday afternoon. <laughs> uh, so uh, Time for the guitar. Right. To That's right. Uh, uh, some, uh, some guitar, uh, some um, great time with my family. And I guess as a leader, I think... Um, it's just a reminder of the importance of spending quality time with the people that you love and make sure that you recharge yourself. And I, I think, again, the importance of staying fresh, the importance of having a balanced perspective, the importance of finding uh, the optimism within yourself and, and myself. Um, and I think that need is something that we should remind each other of. And I, I do remind myself from time to time. Well, Jesper Brodin, uh, please do stay refreshed balanced and optimistic. We appreciate your optimism and everything you do. Thanks so much for being with us on Leadership Next. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Thank you.
Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.